Welcome to the podcast, Most People Don't But You Do. Stories and conversations about the benefits received and the fulfillment enjoyed by doing what most people don't. This is Bart Berkey, CEO and founder of Most People Don't. We're a motivational storytelling and sales training company where we provide enabling tools to empower you to do what most people don't. Today's guest comes to us from Southern Cal- Southern Florida, rather, even though you look tan like you could be anywhere, um, from Southern Florida. And this is a gentleman that I had the pleasure of working with from a communications perspective. When I was at Ritz-Carlton headquarter office, it is Matt Papuchis. Uh, we have known each other for many, many years. And what is really unique and special about Matt, a couple of different things. He is a communications expert. He is an employee engagement expert. He's a change management leader. And most recently, and thank you again for the book, he is a published author. So um, before I get into all of the things that I adore about Matt, um, welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you so much, Bart. I appreciate the uh, the warm welcome and the very kind introduction. Thank you. No, for sure. And the first interactions I think that Matt and I had, uh, you were responsible for the commitment to quality at Ritz-Carlton's corporate office. And can you explain what the commitment to quality was? Absolutely. So um, as you as you mentioned, uh, communications leader for almost 20 years now, which is almost hard to believe that I've been in this line of work for uh, for that long. But I'll tell you, and I share this all the time with people that, you know, all the communication channels or forums or vehicles that I've I've managed throughout my career, the commitment to quality is probably the most powerful one. And that's because it is a basically a seven day packet or a week's worth of content uh, that we delivered uh, 365 days a year to our hotels around the world at Ritz-Carlton. And really the idea was that every lady or gentleman, and you, my the, the, the line I used to use was whether you were a bartender in Charlotte or a housekeeper in Shanghai, uh, you were hearing uh, pretty much the same message every day, right? And these were what are the key things that our organization is most focused on? What are our key objectives, our goals, uh, all tied into our gold standards and our, and our values as an organization? And making sure that everybody had um, a firm understanding of what we were focused on most as a company and how they, uh, you know, most importantly, how they contributed to our success, right? So um, these, these, these lineups, and it, it was it was the vehicle that that fueled the daily lineup conversation. So they were to be not necessarily read as a script, but we would build them in a way where a leader could really take the content that was in the commitment to quality and make it their own, customize it, and bring it to life every day for their ladies and gentlemen around the world. Yeah, and I, you did such a great job in it. And the reason why I wanted to start with that story, what I noticed initially about you, and again, it was probably within the first week of you being in that role was that you were going out and you were seeking input from other people. So you were not, even though you are a communications expert and a terrific writer and you have wonderful ideas about change management and leadership, you were going out and you were seeking opinions and advice and suggestions for everyone else. So um, at the time, gosh, I can't remember if I was global sales or if I was a recruiter, but you wanted to know my input and you're just like, oh, Bart, this is great. Who else can I talk to? Do you have any more ideas? So I'm just very grateful for that because not everyone with your background, with your areas of expertise, always wants to ask people. So thank you for that, Matt. 
No, thank you, Bart. No, and you're right, because, you know, the things that I was hearing about from, you know, you're like yourself, from Janet uh, Souter, mm-hmm. um, Valerie Borland, you know, the people who were working on some of the most critical things that the company was focused on. These were the things that our ladies and gentlemen around the world should be hearing about, right? Not something that I concocted in my own little silo. Um, it was wow, this is great stuff that that these teams are are working on and they're applicable to our worldwide population who, you know, most, you know, in most cases would never have the benefit of uh, attending um, a corporate lineup or or visiting the headquarters in Chevy Chase. You mentioned we were at the headquarters in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And so how can we bring headquarters to them essentially right how can we share with them everything that we're doing from a from an organizational standpoint from a corporate standpoint and bring it to life for them locally yeah and and that's it it almost reminds me and there was another friend at corporate that would say this you know if i have two apples right and i give you one i only have one but if i have two ideas and i share one with you then you have an idea and i have an idea and we can all share ideas something along the lines of that about sharing ideas um, and Matt, you know, right now, and I want to read a little bit about your background, so our close to twenty thousand listeners will be able to understand what you've what you've been able to do. I want to talk about who has made you unique and special, Matt Papuchis, in growing up and your influences. And then I do want to talk about your book. But currently, right now, um, in addition to being an author, director of internal communications for Nova Nova Health System, a phenomenal organization. Um, Marriott International, two different stints, Director of Communications, Global Human Resources, Direct Communications and Change Management, Global Consumer Operations. Uh, You had also worked as Corporate Employee Communications Leader for Carnival Cruise Line. Gosh, I mean, some phenomenal things. Corporate Office, Ritz-Carlton, Freelance, Journalist, um, some really, really incredible things. So, Matt, the question for you, uh, how did you know and uh, in, in, we talk about on this podcast, people that go above and beyond. And then also I asked for people to share their passion points. At what age did you know that you enjoyed the communications aspect and the discovery of new ideas and sharing? Yeah, great question, Bart. And it's one of those things where it almost sounds kind of cliche, but I, I almost knew that this was what I wanted to do uh, from the time I was a little kid in terms of writing um, and initially, I, w- I was a journalism major in college, um, and I thought I would grow up uh, to be the next Tony Kornheiser or, or great sports writer for the Washington Post. Uh, but I graduated from college during a time when uh, the newspaper industry was changing a little bit. And so I, I knew that I wanted to pursue uh, writing as a career, um, but it took a little bit of a different uh, turn when I graduated and you mentioned freelance writing. So I kept up with the the journalism a little bit, but I discovered the world of internal communications basically right after I graduated in 2003. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one company you didn't mention um, from the, from the long list, there was a uh, Sodexo, mm-hmm. which was my first company out of college. And I was fortunate that I had a, a boss there uh, by the name of Angelo. I'll give him a quick shout out, Angelo Iofreda, who was the VP of internal communications at Sodexo. And he was the one that really inspired my passion for this particular field. Like I said, writing was always something that I felt passionate about and felt that I was fairly good at. Mm-hmm. But in terms of you know the role that internal communications can play on employee engagement, on um, basically 
driving success across the board. You know, one of the things that we hear at Ritz Carlton all the time was, um, you know, guest engagement is what um, really drives the bottom line um, and take, take it a step further. Employee engagement is really what drives guest engagement, right? So realizing the important role that internal communications can play on employee engagement, which then correlates to guest engagement, which of course correlates to financial success. So really, I just, I, I, that's what I was most passionate about very early on in my career is how can we as storytellers, communicators, uh, employee engagement leaders really inspire performance out of our employees mm-hmm. uh, that, that impacts the organization in a positive way. Okay, so let me ask you then, and um, we might get back a little bit more to growing up and you know uh, teachers perhaps that were influencers. But as you were referencing internal communication and the importance of it, so for people that are listening right now to the podcast that do not have a background with internal communications. Are there a few things, two or three things that you would suggest that they need to consider in order to get better or to be good at internal communications? And I know this is a very high gain related question. I don't wanna catch you off guard, but this is kind of what you know. What would you suggest, right? What are some things that, that make you really, really good at internal communications and what tips would you share for others that don't have your experience? Yeah, I mean, to start off with, you know, one of the ways that I describe internal communications the most or, or, or you know, surface level to somebody who's, who's may, may not even, excuse me, may not have even heard of what internal communications is supposed to do. Yeah, I look at it almost like internal PR, right? There's a lot of focus on creating uh, buzz with your customers, whether it's social media or, you know, targeted marketing or things like that. But really, uh, my focus has been how can we create that same kind of buzz and excitement internally, right? So, you know, you're, and one of the, one of the things that I've always said is, you know, you don't want your employees to ever find out something really important about your company by reading the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or reading a press release, right? So how can we engage our employees to be, you know, ambassadors of the brand um, and to be proud of what we're doing um, if, if they don't know what we're doing, right? So it's basically just making sure that they're fully aware, again, what are our key objectives? What are we trying to achieve as a company? What are our big milestones? Um, what are the things that we, you know, what's our three-year, five-year plan, whatever that looks like? That way that they show up to work every day, realizing that what they're doing contributes to that end goal, right? They're not just showing up and punching a clock uh, at nine and punching out at five o'clock PM and they're just, you know, trying to figure out what they're doing in between. It's no, how can we make it explicitly clear for them that the work that they're doing serves a greater purpose and that they're contributing to the overall goals of the organization. And then how can we tie our success back into what they're doing? Yeah. And Matt, you know what, as you just described, it does not sound that complicated. It's not Okay. Right, right. And let me just summarize because I'm taking some notes because I also am learning from you. Uh, creating internal buzz, internal excitement, 
with your employees to get them more engaged, to get them excited internally. So they are aware not only of what the key objectives are, what the mission is, what the values are of the organization, how is the company performing to those objectives, and then how they can contribute and maybe even giving them suggestions on how they can contribute. Absolutely. And, okay. And what's really, really interesting, Matt, is that I spoke to, um, let's say, a friend of a friend recently, and they had been on furlough for 14 months. So still getting paid something, right? Still part of the payroll system. They had not heard from their company in 14 months. Okay, 14 months. And I'm, you know, I'm not, not to get you sad or depressed. I know you're passionate about communication, but that person is now looking for a new job because if we compare it to another person that I speak, have spoken with, they're just like, yes, we have a call every single week and it's for 15 minutes. And my boss is my, my boss or my former boss, whatever you want to call them is still keeping me updated on what they know. They don't have all the answers, but they're keeping us updated on what they know. What, what what's and again, the video is not going to be shared with everyone um, on the audio podcast, but yes, Matt is looking rather sad and upset. What would you share with those organizations? I think it's easy to forget. Um, hmm. It's one of those things that it's so simple, it's easily overlooked mm -hmm. in terms of the importance, and you sort of boiled it down right there, <laughs> keeping people in the loop, right? Making them feel in formed. Um, they're not in the dark trying to guess about their future. Um, and just making sure that those lines of communication are open, even if it's to your point, I don't have all the information right now, but here's what I do know. Um, I think that organizations sometimes um, make the mistake and it could be even a, a well-meaning or, you know, with, with good intentions to not share everything until they know everything. Um, and it's like, well, we can't come out with something until we have all the answers, because if somebody asks, you know, we might have to say, I don't know to something that's totally fine. Yes. Um, you can't wait until you have all the answers, especially as people are trying to make life decisions. When you talk about some of my change management background, some of the things that I've led or some of the projects I've led or, or worked on throughout my career have been in the reorganization space. Mm -hmm. um, although that's a word that most people don't like reorganization, but that's, that's essentially what they are. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you can't wait until you have all the answers to start communicating. You have to get out early um, and you have to get, you know, let people know as early as you can um, before they start coming to their own conclusions. Right. And then you have the yeah. phenomenon, which I've, I've blogged about on LinkedIn before, and it's certainly not a term that I coined myself by any means, but the employee grapevine effect mm -hmm. uh, takes hold where it's basically employee gossip, right? If, if one person has a boss who is good about keeping them informed uh, and they're talking with somebody else in the organization who might not have that same information, um, then things start things start getting spread um, underneath sort of the, the surface. And then by the time the organization comes out with their official statement, if you will, it's almost too late because employees have already heard it and they've already sort of yeah, interpreted it or misinterpreted it in many cases. Um, 
but but by then, because they've already told the story to themselves and they've already came come to their own conclusions, it's almost too late at that point. Yeah, yeah. And then when you talk about disengagement, so one, they're demotivated, they're disengaged, they're worried, they're nervous, they're anxious, they are all, they're all those things. So Matt, as you were just sharing about, sometimes companies feel that they need to wait to have all the information. And your suggestion, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that they can say, I don't have all the information, but this is what I know so far. What, what yeah. is that? Is that correct? Yes, yes. I, I think the word, I don't know, um, seems to have some bit of a stigma or a taboo, if you will, but there's really nothing wrong with saying that. Here's what we know now. Good question. I don't have all the answers yet, but we're, we're working through that. But we wanted to be you know, as transparent as possible and sharing all the information that we have available now. Yeah. We'll continue to keep you up to date, et cetera. You know, th those types of things. Do you, do you think it's because companies are the litigious environment in which we live in that companies are afraid if they say too much or like there's a, a, a term that I have coined recently and hopefully I'm the only one because I actually bought the URL for it doing decency, doing decency, having humanity in the workplace. Do you feel that people are scared that if they talk about their feelings, they talk about what they know, but they don't have all the facts? Do you believe that perhaps they're, they're gun shy or they're afraid of being sued in some way? I haven't really thought about it from that perspective, Barb. That, that very well could be. Like I said, I think, I think almost... To, to give you know a, a put a positive spin on it, like I said, I think that they're they're well-meaning in terms of they feel like they would be doing a disservice to their employees by not sharing everything at once, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think they they try to make sure that everything is a hundred percent buttoned up before they communicate, uh, in thinking that that's probably the best course of action. But but my perspective is that that could take a very long time to do. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, whether it's two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is, the, the, this chirping starts to happen at the, you know, the frontline level. And that's when people start to get anxious and nervous um, and they wonder what's going on. Yeah, for sure. And um, Matt, you know, you and I have been communicating during furloughs, right? It, during when, when COVID hit our the hospitality industry, meetings and events industry, very, very difficult, in a very difficult way. How were you able to, because we can talk about anything objectively, you need advice on something, I can tell you whatever you need to hear and vice versa. How were you able to objectively use all the information that you have gathered throughout your career from an internal communications, from a change management perspective, from an HR background, when that was happening to you, that that guess what, Matthew, we love you, but you're out of a job. Honestly, um, you know, and I was working for Marriott at the time, uh, as you mentioned, the, the role in consumer operations that um, I was, you know, I, that that role was eliminated as part of as part of COVID. Um, and I was out of work for uh, a significant portion of, of 2020. Um, but I will say. Um, and then, you know, not to not to uh, get too ahead of myself or, or get skipped to the punchline right away. I was I was rehired by Marriott in September. So I was laid off in in April. 
rehired in September. And there's a reason I went back. And it's not just because I, uh, you know, was desperate and needed work, although that's true. Uh, I went back because I respected the way that Marriott handled the the furlough communication process from the beginning. Um, and they did it, again, in a humane way, in a way that made people feel um, there was there was compassion, there was empathy, and there was transparency. Um, and it was done very well. So even though I was on the receiving end of, you know, tough news, it was delivered in a, in a very, um, in, in a very humane way, in a very compassionate way uh, from, you know, Arnie Sorensen, our, our beloved CEO who passed away earlier this year. I mean, I think the video that he sent to all employees back in March of 2020 that went viral, essentially, um, will, will be studied as sort of a, a master class a way to communicate uh, to employees something of this nature. And that video was sent internally first before it made its way through mm -hmm. the, the Twitter sphere or whatever. Um, and then that, that video was followed up with basically one-on-one -on -one conversations and, you know, other more, more intimate conversations with leaders um, in, the, in the days that followed that video. But they, they did it in such a way where, you know, you felt as though, um, you know, and I've, and I've blogged about this too, uh, when, when, when after Mr. Sorensen passed away earlier this year, I said, you know, to me, his, his legacy will be the way that he navigated the organization through that time and making decisions that I could never in a million years imagine having to make. Um, totally um, unenviable in every way, but through it all, they remained, again, transparent and open and honest about, about what they were doing and why they had to do it. Now, that I think that's probably something that I hadn't touched on too much so far in this interview is the why, um, not just the what. It's here. here's why. And the company was obviously left with no other choice but to make those really tough decisions and how they communicated it, I think, will be um, remembered the most. Yeah, and looking at what you're talking about and the suggestions, I, I agree with you that it was handled to the best of their ability from a company perspective. And one thing that you didn't mention is that there was, um, besides empathy and humanity and decency, there were a lot of tears. And there oh, were yeah. tears from the leaders that had to let go of people and how to put people on furlough. And those are, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the emotions are certainly real when you work with people for, 16 years, 25 years, 38 years, you know, it's yeah. never easy. But I want to get back to the question of how were you then able to apply your knowledge? Because anytime things are happening to us, it becomes very emotional, of course, and often difficult to remain objective. How did you handle the situation? And I was the reason why I'm asking this is, you know, on the first couple pages of the book, you're talking about, you know, the first time out of a job since you were 14 years old and how were you to handle it? And, you know, your, your family and your children, how did you approach it? That's it. Well, how did you approach it? And I know the, the book is part of the solution, but do you mind sharing a little bit about how you, how you begin to heal from that situation, not that it was intentional, it was just sadly the freaking pandemic. Yeah, that, that's what it comes down to. And, and that's why, um, and I wrote about this early on in the book, I knew that, you know, rationally, uh, I knew that this was not a personal 
mm-hmm. thing. Like this was not a, oh, let's, let's figure out a way to get Matt out of the organization. Right. Um, and so, yeah, consciously, you know that, uh, but subconsciously there were moments where that none of that mattered. Right. Uh, the, the, the ration, uh, the, the ability to reason and, and be rational, uh, that sort of goes out the window in some of those moments where, again, a father of three, um, my wife, fortunately, um, who was not working for about eight or nine years when the kids were very young, had gone back to work um, in February of 2019. So she had been working for only about a year and change when this whole thing hit. Um, and you know, between her salary and um, some money that we had saved up and some of the, um, some of the uh, government uh, stimulus packaging, if you will, speaking of kids, I can hear some of them in the background. Hopefully they're not too, uh, <laughs> it's, it's all good. too noisy. But um, you know, that, that, that was able to keep us afloat for a finite period of time. So in the back of my mind, it was like, okay, we're, we're, we're okay financially now, but at some point that's not going to be the case. So, you know, it was, it was a definitely a tug of war, almost like a daily ping pong match. If I think about it in terms of feeling like, okay, well, look, it's not just me. This gives me the opportunity to be more present with my kids, to do things that we've put off for a number of months or years in some cases, in terms of the opportunity to have quality time together. But then the other side would be like, Matt, you gotta get back to work. Like you, this, this can't, uh, this, you can't maintain this lifestyle. It's funny because, and I mentioned this in the book at, at some point, I'll, I don't tell this specific story, but we went and visited my father last summer. Uh, I took the kids on a little two week road trip. He lives up in Delaware on the Eastern shore, mm-hmm. uh, not far from Ocean City, Maryland, where, where I uh, spent my summers vacationing and he had recently re- retired and he made the comment to me as we were sitting on his patio one afternoon, uh, having a cocktail around four in the afternoon. He's like, this retirement life isn't so bad. I'm like, I know, tell me about it. I mean, I've been retired since April, uh, only partially kidding. Cause I did enjoy, there were lots of, uh, you know, lots of components of the retirement life that I did enjoy last summer, but certainly um, I wasn't ready financially to retire officially. So it was, again, it was one of those tug of wars all the time between trying to embrace uh, and savor that quality time that I knew would, would be gone as soon as I went back to work. But then it was like, I also want to get back to work as soon as I possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's so funny that you say that because a lot of the terms that you just used, I, similar situation, right? I took the early retirement package, but the early retirement package for me was not enough to retire on. And, you know, talk about pursuing your passion and savoring the time. And yeah, there was a time when the package and, you know, sold some stock and everything else to elongate the runway and very blessed right now that things are rocking and rolling, but everyone was like, how's retirement? And you're just like, well, you know, two weeks into it, it's great because you have no worries, but then you have to realize, look, I'm trying to provide for a family and everything else. So certainly understand exactly what you're saying. And hopefully did, do you now have a different appreciation? Are you able to embrace, as you said, and savor the time with your family, even though you are working, I'm sure multiple full-time things, as well as probably writing 10 more books? Yeah, no, it's true because I said this to myself when I did, you know, go back to work that I would, I would do so, but in a way that was, you know, I'm, I've always basically, um, 
thrown everything that I have into my work. And there's still part of me that does that, but in a much healthier way in terms of, uh, you know, I do not bring my laptop with me um, to the baseball field, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that I used to do. Um, you know, I bring it with me on vacation. Uh, yes, the, I don't know if I'll ever break those habits, but in terms of just finding a balance, as cliche as that sounds, um, I said to myself, I wasn't going to let the the little things eat away at me the way that I used to. Um, we, we all get caught up in the corporate grind and some of the hierarchy here, uh, corporate politics that goes along with some of the work that we do. I mean, it's just part of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the things I used to agonize over. Um, and n- now I try not to let them, yeah. you know, keep me awake at night as much as the, they used to. Yeah. Well, when you, it's when not you to talk- say I don't take my work as seriously. That, you know, that's why I was trying to like, tiptoe into that answer. How, you know, I still take my work incredibly seriously, uh, but I don't let it take over my entire life. Let's yeah. No, and you were, you have been able to use, and I'll call it a life event, right? I do a lot of studies when I'm before I'm presenting to groups on things that people know that they should do that they've not yet done. And it's something as simple as finding a better work-life balance. Or when you look at the study of people taking the stairs versus an escalator, only 1% of people when given a choice will take the stairs. And when they're interviewed, Matt, they say, well, I've had a life event, either myself or someone in my family, a health-related life event that has caused me to do something different. What I love about your story is that your life event was the pandemic, but you've been able to manage through it, yet it helped you rebalance and refocus family time. Yes, you're still wholly committed to working really, really hard. I know you, um, but you're also focused on that well-being aspect of your, your kids and your wife, right? And your relatives, Absolutely. your friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely something to be said about, and I talk about this in the book a little bit too, about, you know, if your kid comes to you with a question, you know, it can't be, yeah, hang on one second. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. That sounds good. No, I mean, put the phone down. The email can wait. Um, five minutes, uh, give your kids the full attention that they deserve, um, and be more present, uh, be more, uh, physically present or, you know, mentally present as much as you are physically, because if you're sitting in the room with them and your mind is, you know, drifting towards other things, um, that's not the same as being fully present with them. So try to give them the attention that they deserve because the other thing that I've learned, you know, over the past year, um, is that the, it goes by so quickly. I mean, it really does. And so, um, you know, my, my oldest son will be in middle school next year and it's mind boggling to me to, to think about how fast that happened. Um, and then in a, in another blank, he'll be done with high school and I'll be going to college. Right. So we only have so much time to be present, uh, in our children's lives in, in, in a way where they don't feel as though you were an absentee parent. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So Matt, I want to make sure that we get to your book in the remaining moments here, because this is, uh, I think, critically important. So the name of the book is A Little Birdie Told Me. I'm going to hold it up here. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, look, we are are mirrored there for a second. We have a nice nice sort of symmetrical look here. Yes, that's very kind of you. (laughs) Beard and almost shaven head. Um, A journey to find hope, happiness, and the wings to fly. So 
in writing the book, did you find hope, happiness, and the wings to fly? I did. And I found that um, in the activity that serves as sort of the backdrop of the book, which you can see on the cover is a red cardinal. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I discovered last spring slash summer um, to help in tremendous ways, almost turned into sort of a therapeutic experience for me was birding uh -huh. uh, or bird watching. <laughs> uh, but really it was, um, and I talk about this in the book about, you know, how I sort of stumbled upon this hobby, but I quickly learned that it was not only very therapeutic, but almost essential in terms of my ability to find perspective, to uh, do some soul searching and reflecting because you know, you're wandering along these nature trails in the middle of nowhere in the sweltering heat in Florida. And you have a lot of time to just sort of think and to again, gain perspective, to, to uh, search for clarity um, and to talk to yourself, which I put this in the book. Yes, I did that. Um, mm -hmm. At while while bird, you know searching for birds, so I mean birding became sort of the vehicle that I leaned on heavily last year to to find that peace and perspective that I was seeking during this time where again I was playing ping pong with myself, like struggling with coming to grips of being out of work, but also feeling guilty for not savoring those moments, mm -hmm. and so I I found this hobby, and you know when I went back to work last September. Um, I was, I found myself at the same nature trail that I had spent a significant amount of my summer at. And I said to myself, you know, I'm going to write a blog because I had written some blogs last summer that sort of chronicled my, my journey. And then I shared some of my observations and I found myself being completely transparent and vulnerable um, really for the first time in my writing. Uh, you know, we talked about my corporate communications background and even my journalism background. So most of the writing I was doing uh, was was not personal in any way. It was, you know, uh, very objective uh, writing. And so I found myself for the first time writing in a very personal way, sharing intimate details about what I was feeling. And, you know, I quickly found that people responded to it positively uh, because they found um, comfort in, in some of the things I was saying, not only because it was it was refreshing to see somebody be honest that way but you know some of the things that i was hearing people say were that i was able to find the words that they that they necessarily couldn't find mm -hmm. or, or they couldn't necessarily find for themselves and so i was you know almost speaking on behalf of a group of people uh who were in the very similar situation as i was so i had written a bunch last summer um and as i was thinking about going back to work i said i'm gonna write one more blog but I'm going to talk about the birds and how they, you know, the lessons that I learned while in, engaging in this birding uh, hobby of mine. And then as I was sort of talking it through in my head, like I said, I would do that at, in those parks. I said, this could be a book. I don't know how, I don't, I don't know if it'll be, you know, even work, but, but I think that I could make this work into a book. And so I got home that night and put the outline together and I basically wrote the thing in a month. Hmm. Once I put the outline together, it sort of flowed out of me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you share with our listeners how you integrated um, a bird type or species or I guess type? I don't know. I'm not using the right birding word for each chapter. Can you just give us one example? 
Sure. So, you know, there's a new, so that each chapter is based on a lesson that I learned while birding and how that lesson then applies to basically every other aspect of my life, whether it's parenting or on the professional front as an employee or a leader of others. And so one, one chapter specifically was, um, you know, about, uh, it's called, um, let me find this one here. Um, uh, pushing your boundaries and pursuing excellence, which, you know, going back to pursuing excellence, you're talking about the Ritz Carlton and Marriott, mm -hmm. you know, one of Marriott's um, uh, uh, taglines, if you will, success is never final. So never resting on your laurels and thinking that once you've achieved a certain amount of success, you're done, you can cross it off the list. And so, you know, the prairie warbler, as you can see in this photo here, uh, was the, the species that inspired this particular chapter because the first time I went out to photograph one, it, it looked like that. I mean, it was like gray and grainy and I said, I could do better. And so this chapter then shows sort of the chronicle of, of how I attempted to photograph this particular bird. So, you know, it was it, this chapter was all about the pursuit of excellence mm -hmm. and how just because you've achieved something or you've accomplished uh, a goal, you shouldn't stop there. You should, you should keep trying to push yourself to get better, practice, uh, and pursue excellence. And so each chapter ba basically is framed in that way where it's based on a particular outing or, to your point, a particular species of bird mm -hmm. that, that uh, reinforced or taught me a lesson about life in general yeah. and how that lesson then applies to other situations. Yeah. And what I really appreciate about that, Matt, is that I found some similarities, right? I'm not completely done with the book. I told you my wife borrowed it kind of when I started it. So I still have to finish it. But what I thought was really good about that is the analogies that you are making. And it reminded me a little bit about, right, my book, Most People Don't and Why You Should. So one example, leadership lessons learned on a racetrack. We're going around, this gentleman is teaching me how to drive this race car. And he said, look, around this break, around this curve, I don't want you to break. I want you to accelerate. And I want you to look at the next three curves ahead. The faster you go, the farther ahead you need to look. All right, just that for driving, right? The, the faster you want to go, the farther you need ahead you need to look. And I thought, oh my gosh, isn't that like with life too? Life is so freaking busy right now. So what's our marketing plan for 2024, right? right. What, what, what are you doing right now when your kids are middle school and younger to make sure that you are saving for their college education? Because guess what? Life is moving fast. You better be looking farther ahead. So, you know, that one quick little example, I've shared that with thousands of people and yeah. they can remember that because, right. it, you know, just like your examples of um, peace and appreciation for the journey, the Blue Jay, right? Talking about living in the present, enjoying the moment, being yes. here, enjoy the here and now. Yes. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think it's, it's you know, such a, a well done book and so remarkable do you think that people are, you were able to write this because you were going through a personal journey. If I am happy and content, Matt, am I going to enjoy this book? Am I going to learn something from it? Or do I need to be in a place of, I, I need, I need someone to explain how I'm feeling. I, I honestly think, and it's funny because I, you know, I, I sent out some copies to um, some friends and, and family um, and, and, and people obviously bought, bought their own copies, but I had a cousin of mine who um, 
texted me about a week or so after he started the book and he said, uh, you know, I don't, don't take this the wrong way, but I'm, I'm enjoying your book a lot more than I thought that I would. And I said, well, I'm not offended by that uh, because, you know, and the point there is I think there's something in there that's relatable to almost anybody. Like I said, whether you're a parent, whether you're a business leader, whether you're going through something personal or uh, a traumatic experience, or you're completely content, I don't think there's uh, there's necessarily one audience group that that could find it as relatable as the next. I think there's something in there for for almost every type of of reader. To be honest with you, and I know that you know I'm not trying to sound as though that everybody in the world should go buy this copy, you know, copy this book tomorrow. But I do think that you know there's stories in there that. Um, there's nothing there that I think that people could find something, some meaning in, in a lot of it. And that's actually why I brought it up because um, reading some of your blog postings before when I had a lot of uncertainty in my life was extremely helpful. Okay. Um, messages of inspiration of positivity of people going through the same thing. What I found in reading the book now, and things are accelerating for me from a starting my own business perspective, I still found it really helpful, because it made me think back to uncertain times. And reminded me to continue to reevaluate things. And it sounds real, really simple, and perhaps even silly. About every three weeks, I take a permanent marker, and I write heart on my arm, so I don't forget my health situation. You know, it's a reminder. So what I really enjoyed about your book so far is it's a reminder that even if things are great, always appreciate that things are great, that things are going with a momentum. Yeah, and I, and I, and I need to, to read this one um, endorsement. And this is from Tim Kirkjohn, is that spelled? Tim Kirchin, he and he's actually, uh, and this goes to show show you like sort of the the broad array of um, readers who might appreciate the book. Tim Kirchin is an ESPN uh, analyst for Major League Baseball and, and a best selling author, um, and so he was one of the people that I had reached out to early on just for some advice on how to navigate the publishing landscape. Uh, and he and he offered to write a, 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 a you know some words of, of praise for the back cover. Yeah, so. yeah. And I just wanted to share this inspiring book has something for everyone. So that kind of answers the question that I had. Matt has masterfully and seamlessly weaved his story into life lessons. Some provided from the difficult part of his journey. A little birdie told me will resonate with bird lovers, baseball fans, and all those in between. So certainly well done. Well, Matt, um, I, I am so thankful for the time to be able to chat with you to reconnect with you. Um, for those that would like to learn more about you, and about how to find your book, would you mind sharing any contact details? Sure. Um, yeah, link to talk about LinkedIn. I've written some blogs on LinkedIn. So you can always find me there. Um, Matthew Papuchas. Uh, the book is currently available um, on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, basically any any online retailer. But the uh, comes in hard hardcover, paperback, and uh, Kindle version on Amazon for the, the ebook readers out there. And I'm contemplating doing um, an audio book at some point, but uh, we'll see about that. But um, yeah, LinkedIn is the best way to find me. Um, and yeah, I appreciate the support, uh, Barton. Appreciate the opportunity to come on uh, and talk a little bit about the book and. 
and yeah. reconnect and uh, chat yeah. about uh, those Ritz Carlton days. As you can see, I'm still wearing my that's right good, shirt. Good for you. Yeah, and yeah. Matt, what I I appreciate about your story is that you know our listeners want to learn something about what has made you successful, um, what has enabled you to get through some tough times, how you're able to refocus on things. So we really covered everything from how to be a better communicator from an internal perspective, what that job means to employee engagement, to dealing with adversity and being resilient. So Matt, I cannot thank you enough. Let me spell your last name, um, Papuchis, P-A-P-U-C-H-I-S. His book, A Little Birdie Told Me, available on Amazon and anywhere where great books are found. I guess that sounds good. Uh, communications expert, employee engagement expert, change management leader, published author and uh, just a smart, terrific gentleman and a very good friend. So Matt, cannot thank you enough. Thank you, Bart. I appreciate it.